0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Alien Crash Site. I am Caitlin McShay, and this episode that you are about to hear is the last Alien Crash Site episode of the year 2020. It airs on December 30th, so if you're listening to it, that means we are two days away from wrapping up this very strange and very challenging year, and we have a lot of really fun and exciting interviews already lined up for 2021. So we'll continue to push through, and as the epidemic wanes, the explorations of the zone will only ramp up. Our guest this week is David Stout. David is a very interesting person. He is multidisciplinary, but in the realm of artistry more so than science, and as such is a a close friend of the Institute's. He's a visual artist, he's an electronic musician, he's a composer, and um, he's been working on some really, really cool visual work as of late that we'll discuss in this episode. Specifically, uh, he's working in kind of generative digital fractals. And if you are just listening through the podcast, I want to remind you, as I remind you every week, that you can watch the original video interviews of all of these episodes at aliencrashsite.org. And I specifically encourage you to do so for this episode because David shares some new work that's not yet out there, and it's very stimulating, and it makes for ease of visualization of what his alien object is. David took it upon himself to prepare a very thoughtful and thorough description of the object as he would hope to find it in the zone. And so this episode has a bit of a theatrical flair to it, which is kind of a nice way of rounding out the the series for 2020. And fittingly for the podcast, given this post-visitation premise that we lean upon, David ends the conversation with a few details, ethnographic details across alien encounter stories that he's been reading lately. So be sure to stick around to the end to hear about those details. I think they'll come in handy in advance of the next visitation. So without further ado, I will turn this over to the conversation. I wish you a hearty, healthy, happy new year on behalf of Alien Crash Site, on behalf of the Interplanetary Project, on behalf of the Santa Fe Institute. Thank you very much for tuning in this year and we will see you in January.
1: Hi, David. Hello. (laughs) How are you this evening? I'm good. I guess it's not evening for you. You're a little further west than I am. I'm in New York, actually.
2: Oh, you're in New York?
1: Yeah, just for the holidays. Okay,
2: Okay, great.
1: And you're in Denton?
2: Yes, and usually I go to Santa Fe or somewhere, usually either the Northwest or Santa Fe for the holidays, but staying put this year.
1: Yeah, and so you would have been in, in Santa Fe recently for the workshop on the complexity of structure music. But of course, everything's happening virtually now. So that didn't quite come together either.
2: Yeah, that was, everyone realized that was a very big missed opportunity to be in the same place at the same time. But it's sort of raised the expectation for next the next meeting, which we plan to be at the Santa Fe Institute.
1: Well, that would be great. And that's, uh, that would be a follow-up to the meeting. It's, it's mm-hmm. almost like a part two. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so let me say for our audience, I met David in 2018 when we launched our Interplanetary Festival because David was part of our Autonomous Ecosystems
1: panel, but he was also, I have it in my background, uh, he was also uh, part of Currents, as you have been frequently, and this piece behind Mm -hmm. me uh, is a piece that you did, I I think, with Corey Metcalf, is that correct? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, Um, it's called Interium.
1: Interium. Um, And so I'll uh, link to that festival's page, actually, because I think it's archived, but you can see this is one of our... Festival attendees, uh, completely immersed and totally enjoying it. Great. Yeah. And um, you've been a busy bee since 2018. You, uh, first of Uh, all, are working frequently. uh, You have a lot of side projects that you've been working on as well.
2: Yes. Um, Corey, uh, we have a group called NoiseFold. But Corey was uh, a new father and has just had his um, second child. So no- Noisefold is on hold for a while. Um, and so I've just been pursuing other things, and the uh, pandemic, you know, uh, if enforced quarantine is actually a really productive time for creative people. So I've been doing a lot of different things.
1: Do you want to share some of that with
2: us, or is it um, wraps at this point? Yeah, so um, I spend well, I, uh, I guess a few things. Uh, uh, one is a new uh, interactive performance audiovisual or visual music uh, project called Hypnomancy, um that was premiered online at Currents this um past um season and hopefully that uh, will be done live at some point or maybe uh i hope i hope to have many performances because the nature of that kind of work requires that you do it at least a dozen times before you really start to um, master it so that is a full you know it's an hour long sort of kind of a song structure multi-segmented um piece Uh, which explores uh, some of the things that I talked about actually in the recent SFI meeting on music and complexity, which is the sonification of visual forms, uh, which we also, Corey and I, explore in the virtual reality uh, work as well. Um, And then uh, I returned to doing something that I hadn't done, uh, uh, really focused on in recent years, and that is uh, working in my studio uh, making electronic music um and specifically music that's inspired uh is inspired by um, various environments uh so it has a sort of acoustic ecology frame of, of reference but not just like uh, landscape music because my interest is in ecology sort of writ large and so dark ecologies like ecologies that have you know have industrial poisons as part of the reality so it isn't always uh, easy uh, listening music, but it's very kind of se- uh, psychoactive soundscapes is how I would describe that. And so I did two pieces um, in that um, vein. Uh, and pro- Well, actually, I just completed a, a third one. So I've done a kind of a trilogy. Um, and two of them were picked up by a label, A who are going to have a, uh, they have an imprint sub label called zero gravity um, which is not the same as zero gravity records but it's it's Ocaron's own thing and so that'll be released sometime in the in the coming year
1: that's great
2: and then i have a third thing i'm doing uh which is kind of funny to me because i'm exploring uh fractal spaces and that's you know i've been asked for years when people look at the work they go well is that, that's fractals, isn't it? And I would go, no, it's not, uh, specifically. Um, and so it's not something, you know, we usually have this uh, uh, preconception of what that means. It's rainbow colors and spirals and, and you know, and these intricate um, reiterations. Uh, but there's so much that one can do when exploring a, a fractal space visually. There's so much uh, possibility. So I've done a, uh, I don't know, I produced about 100 images or probably more for a print series um, that I hope to, to do in the um, coming year. It's, it's, it's easier in some ways to be in the generative space of creating this stuff or really exploring the, the labyrinth of the machine, so to speak, uh, than Physically manifesting prints, which is a, a, a laborious and uh, craft-oriented uh, activity, so it, it'll take much longer to produce the prints probably than it took me to generate the images to begin with.
1: And are you doing that, like with your own hands, analog producing these
2: prints? Um, they will be digitally, you know, they will be digitally produced. Although I'd be very interested in taking these images into other. Um, into other uh, mediums and more, I'll uh, well, just say, classical or traditional mediums like lithography um, and uh, and other kinds of transference of maybe to um, glass surfaces and that sort of thing. I can actually show you some of these things. That'd be amazing. I um,
1: yeah, I was thinking too, I, I really like it when there's this juxtaposition between the types of work that you're producing, this kind of generative um, almost like space exploration, simulated environments. But I, I learned uh, in doing my homework between the last time I saw you and now about the glass sculptures that you've been building that are these kind of sound forms. They're so strange. They, they almost look like they would have been uncovered in the zone, actually. So, yes, I love, I would love to see some examples.
2: Okay. I, cho- I chose just a series of images because they kind of lead into our conversation about the object. Okay. Um, and I won't say too much more about that. And these are super detailed um, images yeah. that potentially, when they're printed, will have more detail than we see actually on the computer screen.
1: Wow, it's, I mean, each of these almost smaller cellular type lifelike things have so much detail within each element of them. It's insane.
2: Yeah, and there's all kinds of symmetry inside of it that you have to look sort of three times to start to see it.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, I mean there's the overall symmetry but then there are all kinds of little um patterns and formations uh made by in this case typically the spherical kind of um forms. Anyway it's much more i these are the only ones I selected because they um as I was saying they relate to the object we're going to talk about especially uh-huh. uh looking at um this surface here on the on this particular one and how those, all of those perforations, there's like perforations, but there also appears to be, if you look at them closely, they look like little embedded insects in there or eyes.
1: Yeah, Um, very um, arthropod-y moments. It's interesting because based on what I'm used to seeing, what I saw in 2018, and what we discussed as a possibility for 2020, when we were thinking about building you a big installational space in the middle of the park before everything happened, um, what differs, what's striking, is that these are so symmetrical. It's the symmetries that you're playing with now that seem so novel to me. Uh,
2: get- yeah, I decided to... Pl- uh, I'm d- actually doing ones that are, aren't symmetrical as well, okay. but I really got into the, uh, the symmetry, and producing the, some of the series almost look like they're portraits, of, maybe of non-humans, but uh, <laughs> they look portrait-like. And so I was just playing off that, our, you know, our strong uh, pattern recognition capacity with bilateral symmetry. So um, most of these things are symmetrical.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting how we imbue a lot of meaning into that symmetry, how we immediately rationalize it when we come mm-hmm. to, to visualize it. But I'm used to seeing your kind of amorphous generative forms that are both spiky and they're, they're turning, they're inverting themselves and it's very different. This is really, really cool work
2: um, these will eventually make it into, uh, into moving images and interactive stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And some of these textures may end up, well, um, I'm doing still images, but if I actually traverse through these as animations, uh, then they go in and out of symmetry and all kinds of things are possible. And then moving it into my the other software I use, uh, I can, can kind of merge this uh, aesthetic zone with with the more like you were saying amorphous uh, spiky transformational object kind of approach
1: and then once this becomes an animation or it's moving is if you if you put it in an installational space would it also then be sonified in some way are you
2: Most likely, yes. And um, maybe that's one uh, distinction I can make about my newest um, performance piece, Hypnomancy, is that um, in Noisefold, we were really, uh, we we kind of followed our own uh, manifesto or dogma, which was to um, pretty much 95% of the time use sound that was a sonification of the visual data. Um, with the work that I, I recently did in hypnomancy, I use that technique, but I also at the same time inter- integrate live um, various live synthesizers, um, samples, uh, uh, live playing on percussion pads and various things. And so I actually mix the sonification techniques up with more what I would call traditional or conventional modes of creating electronic music.
1: And as you said, by virtue of the fact that you're a creative individual and you've been stuck at home and you have access to your studio you've been doing a lot more music. It's a, it's a strange question to ask to anyone that I get to interview because SFI only brings in, you know, multifaceted, multidisciplinary individuals into our network. Um, do you find that you have a preference for sound over the aesthetic or vice versa if you had to choose?
2: Um, I can't. There is no way that I can choose between doing a uh, visual work or sound work. And, and there is a tendency when I'm doing one to miss the other, uh, but I can't, I can't like play into that too much for how much I would freeze. Um, so I was, I was long overdue to, to get, return back to my music making. So this pandemic has actually, uh, I I can't say a whole lot of good things about it, but that's one thing that was a positive uh, result. And and I guess it's really kind of three things because it's, um, it's music making and it's visual making, if you will, but then there's <laughs> the audio visual, which is the merger of the two. So I kind of go between those three areas. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I guess I, I would have been disappointed if you had separated and chosen. <laughs> So that's good. You pass. Um, okay. Well, should we ask what you would hope to discover in your zone, your very dangerous foray into the zone? What does David? Yeah. About?
2: So I, you know, I haven't read. I haven't read the book, but actually, the book is the basis of Tarkovsky's film Stalker, which yep. I've not. It, I, I've seen a number of times, and it's a very actually influential piece of art for me. So this is very interesting. Um. So my, uh, so I'm gonna, I wrote some notes about my object. Okay. And um, so I'm not gonna, we're gonna, uh, I'm gonna kind of walk us through this object so that it sort of is revealed what it is, not, uh, not right at the beginning.
1: Okay, that's dramatic, let's do it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So the object is um, obular or egg-like in form, and it's about 10 inches long and remarkably smooth, like something that you really want to hold. You can't believe how smooth it is. It's difficult to say how much it weighs. It seems like it could be heavy or it could be light. But the one thing we know is that it's fashioned from really dense material, kind of like a polished river rock. Hmm. Um, and, And so much so that if it were sitting on a river bank with other rocks, you might not notice it as any, uh, as anything different. Um, if you did take a closer look at, if you're a casual observer, just sort of poking around, you, you would notice it had a strange perfection, but you wouldn't really be able to say, say that it was significant in the way that it actually is significant. Um, so if it were in the hands of what I will call an, an adept, uh, I'm kind of talking now in sort of spiritual uh, magic sorcery kind of, uh, <laughs> although it could re- also relate to science. It can relate to any kind of discipline where a person has a certain amount of cap- capability, but they really haven't, they're, they're, still, uh, they're still learning and they really haven't quite mastered their subject. Um, so in, in the hands of an, ab, uh, an adept, um, the object could be activated telepathically by focusing one's mind um, on a limited set of frequencies. Uh, much like uh, musicians are able to, you know, practice scales in their head or play instruments, in, in, uh, or, you know, play music in their mind, or a composer can conceive of certain, I don't know about whole symphonies at once, but certainly passages can be played out in one's mind without touching anything. So the idea here is that you could beam a a specific frequency that you can conjure in your head towards this um, object. And when the object is activated, and this is where it relates to the image that I I am showing, when it's activated, a um, hundred or hundreds of teeny eyes open up on its surface. And it's hard to say they look, they look like biological eyes, but they could be a lens array or it could be a multi-point emitter. We don't actually know. But the eyes do look surprisingly sentient and maybe they're watching us. So in the hands of a master, in other words, a person that has has, um, mastered their subject, and in this case, the subject is is the interaction with this um, object, um, or, or instead of saying in the hands of, I could say in the mind of the master, the eyes are entrained to his or her thoughts So the result is an astonishing surprise as the object becomes uh, a hyper-realistic holographic projector uh, capable of depicting or possibly even materially instantiating, we don't know, the intended thought forms of the user. Um, It's not immediately clear if this image sound phenomena is actually projecting into a volumetric space Or if it's just affecting the neural receptors of the people gathered around a certain area, let's say 500 foot radius. Okay. Um, So there there is a there is a possible downside to this, um, and and an upside. We'll talk about that. So in in the hands of an average Earth person, um, the object may or may not activate. In the circumstance that one did, you know, by mistake or unwittingly activate the object, the nature of one's inner thought process could create a pleasant or terrifying experience. Yeah. Um, Humans, as a rule, are not disciplined. Uh, They haven't disciplined their minds yet to deal with the evolutionary inevitability of shared telepathic communications something that star people, uh, also known as aliens, (laughs) reportedly use for most conversations between themselves and others and objects and machines. That's why this object exists because it's of course an alien technology. Um, So one question you might have is why I'd be willing to risk my life for such an object when I could go on the underground marketplace and just buy psychoactive substances. <laughs> um, so the an- I have an answer for that and it's related to spiritual mastery and a desire to kickstart an evolutionary advance of earth dwellers. So in the hands of a skilled uh, master, the visionary images or dream sequences and transformational geometries can be manifest for a large um, participating audience. And the nature of these um, thought projections are so compelling and precise that they can stimulate a reorganization of your DNA. Can elevate your consciousness and elevate your intellect and create a deep abiding compassion for human and non-human brothers and sisters on a global scale. Um, So, this change would facilitate cooperation and will allow us to sort of move beyond our warring nature and begin to take cooperative actions that are required for continued sort of uh, harmonious life on earth, or uh, we, haven't, we don't really have harmonious life on earth, so it, we could, it could usher in an era, an era of such harmony. So that is my object.
1: Okay, let's do it back. Um, alarmingly interplanetary. And,
2: you know, I haven't really na- named the object. So I'm just calling it the eye stone. I hyphen stone.
1: Eye stone. Um, yeah, it's interesting too, because obviously once in the right hands of an adept, as you say, the eyes might reveal themselves. But this must also be why the object itself is kind of popular in shape. Like it already hints, it seems, at what it might contain. So that's pretty cool. Um, huh. Okay. Let's talk about the dangers of it because I think what you provide as a possibility—the the layperson, let's say, having this in their possession—that um, reminds me most of stalker in terms of um, what might be what might be revealed in the room. Right? It is strange that it's so easy to miss, that it's you know compiled with a bunch of other river stones, so to speak, that one could just pass right by. So it almost seems as though the only people who have the capacity to, or the people who would notice it would be the same people who were in search for it and therefore like made of the proper materials to actualize it, it would seem. Um, but in the off chance someone's just skipping stones and picks it up, yes, it could reveal um, a truth that even that possessor didn't realize was taking place within them. It would activate like a, a very genuine frequency, depending on what that is, it could be wonderful, it could be terrifying. Um, So it seems like an object that you would want the Institute to have control over.
2: (laughs) Um, You know, I, the one thing that I didn't, I didn't mention, which is sort of classic Hollywood fare, uh, is, you know, the evil, is the evil genius that gets a hold of it, that knows what it is and has some kind of diabolical use for it. Um, But I really wanted to, I wanted to focus more on the sort of the idea that um, that we're pretty care- we're pretty careless with what we say. I mean, you know, at this moment in time, we're dealing with this on a very large scale. Like things uh, uh, things that are said in the political arena that are really quite dangerous. Um, so I, wa- I really wanted to focus on how sloppy we are with our thinking, and sloppy uh, and how sloppy we are with our sort of emotional barbs, etc., and how. You know, pretend, If you were had had a thought amplifier, uh, how dangerous that really is. So it takes. You know, working with something like this actually takes would take great discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and so that opens up the question in a in a narrative sense of how would uh, how would a treasure hunter in the zone even know that such a thing existed? But of course. If we were writing a screenplay on this, we could figure out the backstory on that.
1: Right, of course, we have the convenience of creation to make that (laughs) together, of course. Um, Yeah, but so what's interesting, too, is that, as you said, why not just go onto the black market and find some psychoactive drugs that would amplify your thoughts for yourself? But what's interesting about this is this area, this radius, you say, 500 feet. And so that's quite small, but it's not, therefore, it's, it's local, but it's still, you know, plural, and so um, that's where the amplification is. It's almost like a communication device.
2: Yeah, it certainly is metaphoric for, you know, communication technology, and it's metaphoric for virtual reality, and and it's not lost on me. Actually, I wanted to to come up with an object that related to my, to my work and and like an, a simpler question, which would be what would be the, you know, the next step in, in your, what technology emerging technology would be the next step in your work? And the obvious answer to that is holographic, you know, convincing, compelling holographic projection Mm -hmm. so that one is not burdened that, you know, VR is pretty amazing, but it's a one person experience. Um, and there are ways in which people are creating spaces where multiple uh, people can stand in the space with uh, as their avatar or whatever, but that 's not what i 'm talking about i 'm talking about you know a very compelling, detailed experience that can be experienced by you know a few hundred people at a time
1: mm-hmm. and uh, it 's shaped by the shared experience of those individuals right it's mm-hmm. it's it's a second reality, and yeah. what we have now is a beautiful, uncanny. Sort of quasi reality space it 's like an entrance, but that 's it it 's just an entrance so then, what could its utility be aside from creating uh, the the possibility space for uh, a hollow deck type reality um, between you and let's say a hundred others? What then takes place? what is shared between those hundred people if the if the correct adept um, activates the correct frequency? what then is it just the true thought
2: um well as i was visualizing it but of course that's also wide open like we could riff on what that could be um and i think different people and different creative types would have different ideas of what it would uh it might be um i mean for some people at sfi it might be the most amazing and important equation that they've ever encountered um uh for me, it would it would be some form of a, uh, ge- it would be some kind of impossible geometric form. Well, I actually know the answer to this. Uh, <laughs> it would be it would be some kind of geometric form or uh, symbolic representation, abstract representation that creates a uh, that creates a portal uh, to other dimensions, and in uh, in that experience of then traversing other dimensions one's consciousness is transformed.
1: Right so it's like an interior exploration almost like all of the if you think if you take a universal perspective and you think about um the way with which a multiverse sort of expands in this branched and fractal way
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it would almost be like a an inverted psychological exploration of a fractal universe which is like blind mm-hmm which could again could be, I think I would be scared to do that inside of my airplane, (laughs) Uh, but perhaps I wouldn't touch the object, I get to explore what you have going on. Um, But infinite, it would be essentially infinite. Um, I I think
2: so in part because individuals, I mean this is the interesting thing, maybe it's it's a flaw in my thinking here, Uh, but this idea that it can be done for groups Mm -hmm. versus individual conversations because every, you know, every individual is slightly, is slightly different. So um, seems like it would have to have embedded in it uh, like those two, um, we call it objective and subjective but there's more to it than that, I think. Um, but it would have a, real, a shared reality and then it would speak to each individual person in a slightly different way.
1: Oh, so it's almost translated in whatever use we want to use for that term. Or you use the term transcoded quite often when you're like talking about the work that you do. Um, There's almost some built it, not not an additional device, but yes, the truth of whatever is being conveyed is is understood on an individual level by those who are sharing in the group experience. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: It's almost like a, a need to know basis type thing. Yeah. That's but we funny. can
2: we can also say that art, experiencing art, is that way. It has an outward, you know, intention by the artist, mm-hmm. hopefully, um, <laughs> uh, but the subjective experience of of it can be so different for a group of people, um, even if a theme runs runs through it.
1: Right, and if you look at something and you recognize that perhaps there's a, a moral expression therein by the artist. Uh, It doesn't change the fact that you quite often can't explain what it is that's going on there that's so meaningful to you and all you want to do is do that but of course you never succeed and therefore there's a the large group experience of having seen the same item but the very particular like atomic experience which is each individual so that that's it this machine your eye uh your eye stone it's almost like experience of art (laughs) yeah um
2: yeah. I wanted to keep it in the domain that I work in, uh, uh, because I, uh, that just is a great, uh, a great springboard or foundation for like fan, you know, creating a fantasy object.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that quite often these discussions, n- not that I would ever have predicted <laughs> the i stone thinking of you, but, uh, they reflect so closely the interests of the people who are, you know, on as guests. And yeah. like I said, our group is quite disparate and, um, very philosophically, aesthetically, cognitively diverse. And so you never know what you're gonna find in the zone. Um, and why is it only, I mean, maybe it's not, maybe this is an assumption I shouldn't have made, but it seems very ocular aesthetic scene shared, but perhaps there's a sound quality to it as I, well. I did,
2: I did mention that there's a sound quality. Uh, okay. And um, I'm thinking about current, there is current technology that allows you to beam Uh, isolated elements of sound into a a specific place. It's used in, uh, you know, art museums. And I'm not, you know, I'm forgetting the name of it's, it's a ultrasonic uh, technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not just talking about parabolic uh, speakers that create kind of a a focus cone. This is even more sort of precise there's other uh, other kinds of uh, immersive uh, sound, ambisonic sound that actually requires a multiple array of speakers. Mm-hmm. So this would be a. T- uh, the idea is that actually would be. Uh, uh, I I like the idea. I just like the visual idea of an uh, of a stone full of tiny biological eyes. It's that innate surrealist in me that, um, um, and maybe ears isn't quite as sexy or something, I don't know. <laughs> but the fact the fact is, is that this would be able to emit sound and um, image and the sound component would ha- have some like heightened ability along the lines of ultrasonic sound that would be able to be beamed to each. It would be kind of a, also a fractal idea. It's like the same sound source if, uh, affects everyone in a similar way no matter where they're standing so it doesn't have the typical problems of an acoustics uh, space being really different depending on where you're sitting in the room.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah there would be a sound component.
1: Um, does the object then expand in some way? Like we know that once activated it becomes covered in these you know like you say sexy biological eyes but it almost seems if I'm imagining being one of the lucky ones that gets to be near the adept, um, I would almost be consumed by yeah, I feel like I would be surrounded and consumed in some way.
2: Well, I was torn if I should make the object to be when it does this thing, it should it levitate, and if this was a Hollywood movie, it would have to levitate of
1: course, of course, <laughs> and you would see whatever's being emitted, whether it's the sound
2: and then from that angle because of the of its shape, it becomes a little bit uFO like in and of itself and um and actually some i I told you that i've been reading a lot about ufo uh, uh, experiences like written by people that have taken kind of an ethnographic approach to uh telling people's stories Uh and so one of the one of the things that happened in well what what emerges for me in this is that it's the amazing similarities i mean not similarities of both broad details but like specific weird details uh are are shared um although the encounters are really diverse but one of the a number of people talk about like a master craft or the mothership or whatever um all these tiny uh like really small disc like forms come out of it and are circling around them and stuff so this i was thinking this could be actually one of those it could be a vessel from a mothership.
1: Okay, that makes sense. If we, so I didn't know that that was a, uni, or not, let's, let's call it a semi-universal uh, detail across these stories, um, which I had not heard before. But this makes sense, right? If the premise is that a sophisticated species accidentally left some junk behind and now we're encountering it when we're you know, dipping our toes into the river, well, that, yeah. would, that would follow, that follows very nicely. <laughs> it would seem that they have many. Um, And it's an obvious thing that would help an advanced civilization, right? Like you said, there's this kind of, uh, non-human brotherly communion possibility that emerges out of uh, the use of an object like this in the right hands. Um, Um,
2: yeah, this could actually be the intermediary for communicating with the, um, extraterrestrials or interdimensionals, or in some cases, um, both extraterrestrial and interdimensional.
1: Is it worth trying to explore, this might be um, clinging too closely to the premise of the book or or the Stalker or what have you, but if that's the case, then why didn't we get to communicate with the aliens who left it behind? Are we so (laughs) little, are we so insignificant that they just didn't even want (laughs) to try?
2: Well, there is the weird, the ending of Stalker, it's been a long time actually since I've seen it, but... I think at the ending of the very end of Stalker, in the last scene, the close, uh, when he returns back to his his home and his family, his daughter, I think, I know it was the very last image, but she's like telekinetically moving like uh, glasses on a tabletop. That's right. Uh, And so there's some kind, somehow, I mean, that's very. it's somewhat ambiguous, but uh, it, it suggests that there is some kind of transformational uh, heightening of powers going on here. And we, I don't know exactly know if it came where it's coming from. So a lot of these ideas are are definitely embedded in the story.
1: Oh, absolutely! Um, yeah, it seems that there's some proximal change, like. Obviously the, the child has never been in the zone, but the stalker goes often and does yeah. proximity to his experience changed yeah. this girl in this way? Um, yeah, it's almost, uh, I mean, in this time of pandemic, you could say that perhaps the, the elements within the zone or access to this ice stone, whatever the consequences are, could almost be uh, passed on, um, spread, you know, in a epidemiological yeah. way.
2: Well, like, yes, yeah, so, so perhaps in an, ep- an epigenetic way.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, that's right, so I think that's yeah. a good ambiguity. Um, it's unclear, I mean, I guess it's so stalker compared to Roadside Picnic. It seems clear that I think the, the kid is referred to as the monkey, um, which you think is just like a sweet term that a, a father is sharing with his daughter, but really it's, she's genealogically changed somehow by yeah. being born from the stalker who was in the zone. Uh, clearly there's, like, a hereditary impact on this man. But you don't get that sense from the movie. I think that Tarkovsky made some interesting choices in how he chose to adapt, uh, Strigansky Brothers' novel. And that's one, is that it's unclear that, uh, where it is that these powers are coming from. Is it because the stalker made it to the room, um, and something was transformed as a result? Is it because his genes were literally altered by his presence in the, in the zone? It's a great question huh. The other thing I really adore about Tarkovsky's adaptation is the dog. There's this, there's no dog in Roadside Picnic. There's no dog. And so when the stalkers are, are entering through the zones, they're tossing around nuts and ribbons to see like whether the zone will eat them up if they step over here, etc. It's almost like the zone can adjudicate whether or not a soul is worthy in the same way this wow. stone sort of adjudicates mm-hmm. whether or not a soul is worthy to activate it. Yeah. The dog's just running around. The dog is fine. (laughs) Um, so anyway, I just think that's a great element, but that adjudicating factor seems extremely important for this eye stone. It is. Otherwise it wouldn't be activated at all. Possibly. It would just remain untouched unused. It's like the right person with the right frequency and the message to communicate.
2: Yeah. If it's in the wrong hands, it, it could be, uh, uh, you know, it could, produce mass psychosis, I suppose, or, um, yeah, yeah. And it, which becomes metaphoric for the whole broad, you know, the whole like, uh, slash broad broadcast conglomerates and how, uh, and how, um, so-called fake news and conspiracy theories are, are being uh, promulgated at such a intense level right now. And that so would be like the, the wrong use of such a technology.
1: Right. Yeah, and that, actually now that you're saying that, of course, we see how quickly misinformation spreads in this internet era when we're all isolated. Um, and I realize I'm staring at you through a screen that is made up of just a bazillion pixels. They're essentially tiny little eyes, <laughs> um, you know. That's right. Yeah, so it, it's not so hard to imagine that something like this exists. It exists, and we're, t- we're exploiting the technology now. Um, but yeah, I think that they're, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about how one could do so a level deeper and to great effect. And it seems the eye stone in the right hands would be that. Is there a, is there a durational limitation? Who's to just say that someone finds themselves in the group of the adept with the eye stone. Is it infinite? Yeah, so we,
2: <laughs> it, so one thing we asked there is like, well, is it addictive? Would it, uh-huh. would it be addictive? Mm, probably, uh, <laughs> potentially addictive. And, and then there's also the issue of ownership, uh, which you were mentioning before, is like, well, uh, this is obviously powerful. Does one person have it? Or th- uh, once it's known that this thing exists, well, there are gonna be other people trying to get it. Um, and then, of course, a whole intrigue starts there.
1: Right. Um,
2: um, but, in the, but clearly, if it's in the hands of the right people it uh, can be very beneficial, and if it's the hands of the wrong people, it may it may not be.
1: Right. Um, yeah. And in terms of addiction, while the object might might not map so so exactly, it seems that there's something about entering the zone that for those who do it for the stalkers is quite addictive and it can't be explained. Um, I imagine what experience one might have with the side Stone would like that be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's yeah, there's that. But then okay, so. Oh, the other thing that comes up in terms of ownership is whether or not we're presuming that there's only one, right? If it's this stone that's hidden in plain sight that presumably came or was one of many that came from a ship, it might be the never-ending, addictive pursuit of more. There might be more. There's more out there. I
2: I assume there's more than just this one. Right. There just might not be that many on Earth, you know. Yeah,
1: Yeah, there might be a handful in each zone, but really there are ubiquitous elsewhere from whatever civilization they came from. Yeah, and so is that it? Is that the fate of the universe once one is discovered? Is everyone like risking their lives in, in the pursuit of this additional stone? <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: the, the idea in my, in my scenario is that it, in the hands of the right person, it, it, it causes an elevation of uh, human capacity and, and compassion. And suddenly, a lot of these issues of um, hoarding resources and trying to climb up to the top on the bodies of your brothers, so to speak, um, would be a thing of the past. And so these problems could be alleviated. But in the short term, once again, thinking of this as an adventure sci-fi story, uh, in in the short term, uh, there's nothing guaranteeing that it gets into the hands of the right person at all.
1: Right. And therein lies all of the elaborate plot choices we could design. Yeah,
2: I mean, we would probably want it to be brought back from the zone and fall, you know, uh, sort of shuffle around between the various households and people that have no idea what it does and various weird things happen.
1: Yeah, and or, as a narrative structure, it would be infinitely iter- iteratable, right? Yeah, yeah I
2: was just thinking, now we, have, now we have a sequel going.
1: Yeah, at least one. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. And then, yeah, I guess unfortunately, so if this was real, let's say there was a visitation 13 years ago and you did stumble into the zone, you found this eye stone, um, it seems that it would be a benefit. But if we're writing an adventure science fiction where the stone exists, I would almost rather have it fall into the wrong hands, (laughs) just to kind of It would
2: would inevitably happen if it was a Hollywood. Uh, production right. for sure
1: well, why is that our instinct? why is that my instinct wow okay so this is a big one this is I think our spaciest so far so there's oh, a lot good. there's a lot for me to try to unpack um
2: well you know it was it it was a great invitation because uh because I've been thinking a lot about um uh speculative fiction science fiction and and also the whole practice the artists who are interested in in, uh, science and doing projects that are art science they have uh, component you know maybe have a major science component to them Mm -hmm. um so they're hybrid works they're in a kind of a gray zone versus um a more speculative approach and i realize i much i fall into the science fiction like it's a comfort zone for me yeah uh to talk about um, potentials because I really like to dream about and imagine things uh, that might actually exist. I don't. I don't know. I like to speculate, um, and so being an artist and working in that zone, I'm completely free to speculate about whatever. I don't have to. I don't have to prove anything um, because I'm much better at. Uh, other people have to prove things. Scientists have to prove things and, re- and make it repeatable. Um, I have the the uh, uh, I, I, the opportunity is what I'll call it. I have the opportunity uh, to work in these speculative spaces and suggest ideas that what, that I do think actually have grains of truth or possibility within them, um, and I'm sort of unfettered. So I lo- I really like the sci-fi space.
1: Yeah. I think that's kind of um, at its core one of the primary reasons why SFI has this interplanetary project that there's this imaginative element that exists in both science and in literature, art, what have you, um, which is like the counterfactual possibility. And so, just to think how often science fiction has motivated scientific research or technological development, um, but it was art first; it was idea explored in the safety of no burden of proof. <laughs> like that's where. Right. That's right. Um, and it motivates so much, but yeah, you're right. It's, uh, you, I think you picked the right side personally. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, a lot more fun and you can go a lot deeper when you don't have to find the perfect equation. Leave that to David Krakauer <laughs> for the rest. David Stout can figure out the idea worth exploring and make it beautiful and accessible. And David Krakauer can find the math to, to define it.
2: So I should probably, this would be a good time to plug this author. Um, I, have read a couple of books. Um, I'm going to read one more by her. Her name is Ardy, A-R-D-Y, six killer as an <laughs> S-I-X killer. Great name. Clark, a Clark with an E at the end, I believe. And, um, she, uh, She's a, a Native American writer, but she actually has like four, three or four degrees. <clears throat> and she has um, spent decades documenting the, the, the stories of Native peoples in both, uh, n- well, North America on into Central America. She spent a decade in the Yucatan area. And, <clears throat> and she Documents the stories that are also like portraits of the people telling the this, this story, um, but there are many, many, many um, different stories and they're incredibly compelling. So high, highly recommended if you're interested in like UFO encounters, that considering the indigenous perspective is particularly, I think, important.
1: Right, I think um, I know very little about it, and I should do some more homework. But living in Santa Fe, you engage quite often with with native culture, and you know, in all of the shops around downtown and Canyon Road are all of these kachinas, these these sculptures that people collect and put on their fireplaces, unknowingly uh, realizing that they're promoting this kind of cosmological creation story that these are individuals that came from space to create um, the the culture and the world that we live in now as opposed to the Western view, which is scary invader aliens that are, you know, set their lasers to, to stun. Well, since this whole podcast kind of speculates about aliens, their existence and visitation, and given the fact that you've been doing a lot of reading in this, this realm, could you, if you recall, could you share with our audience other sort of universal details that people have um, seen or experienced?
2: Uh, well, one, one is, and, and actually in, in one of her books, she sort of lays out the structure of it, of different kinds of beings. And so uh, one of the things that emerges that is that there are, um, I won't, won't say infinite, but very large number of different kinds of life forms that are s- hypothetically uh, visiting the earth. Um, and some, you know, uh, a lot of them are humanoid and ha- uh, have um, similar characteristics, you know, two, two legs, two arms, hands, not always five fingers, um, uh, sometimes more like claws, et cetera, but, but are, hu- are humanoid. Um, and then uh, some are reported to be sort of more etheric or uh, kind of uh, a little more nebulous. There are distinct. There are distinct species, and they're quite distinct from each other. And one of the 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 overall traits that's reported again and again and again is that the person who has the encounter communicates with them telepathically. They don't. Uh, it's all telepathic, no matter what species we're talking about. And so, um, you know, the species include. The things that we all see on, you know, whatever weird documentaries and sci-fi shows, which is that the tall greys and the sh- and the, the shorter greys, mm-hmm. uh, but and then this thing of the uh, lizard people. There, there's a particularly like kind of freaky stories about that in in her book, um, and then these uh, strange blue blue beings that are sort of, uh, don't even know if they actually walk on the ground that are capable of, of healing you. Um, and the thing is, is that you read one thing like that, and you go, well, that's pretty imaginative. But when you read like five different stories from different places where the, the story is the same, that that's when you go, hmm. <laughs>
1: um,
2: and so I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a, a UFO aficionado or something. This is just something I've been doing looking into recently, mm-hmm. uh, um, because it does seem like the, uh, the, it could be because of the internet and how much communication we have, but the, the number of supposed encounters just seems in, enormous right. at this point. Um, and so I thought it was something I should know about. And I'm also very, uh, you know, one of my youthful passions was studying, uh, native um, history and culture and so exploring it through that lens has been particularly compelling for me because that uh, the history of this you know at least the oral history of it goes way way back
1: yeah absolutely
2: so here's another thing is the 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 uh, it, it, i know this sounds so weird but when you read <laughs> these stories from people that seem very unassuming and have that you know have only not spoken because they don't want to be considered crazy right um, um, they have these experience of being taken up in ships and, and basically mined for genetic material. And this is over and over and over. And there are a lot of women that say that they were, you know, that they were implanted or fertilized with other alien DNA and then that their children were harvested from them at some point when they don't know it. And that's where this gets into like, oh, people are just making this up because how could, because we're thinking in purely physical terms, but if we're talking in in, some kind of interdimensional interaction, uh, then it's a whole other ball game. And, um, And so that's a common, you know, whether you want to view it for the psychological lens of, you know, sort of a mass hallucination uh many many people are reporting these stories
1: yeah and if it seems Um, that um it's almost like let's say it's instead because as you say we're quite material let's say that what's actually exchanged is something like in disembodied information right immaterial information again the people who have these experiences are limited by their language and their culture to share them and so of course we make these you know impregnated, harvested, like these are the terms that we have to try to get other people to understand the experience.
2: Yeah,
1: Uh, But perhaps with something like the Eye stone we wouldn't be so skeptical about those accounts. We would be able to understand. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Talk about speculative. (laughs) This is, is I think, the most uh, broad ranging conversation I've had so far, the most how could you say it? I think that we've uh, very carefully cradled the possibility of, of alien visitation in a in a less fictional way than, than I have so far.
2: Yeah, so another thing that, uh, another um, aspect that a number of people reported when um, looking at the, going into visiting the ships, um, one person even said that they were allowed to drive the ship and uh, and I don't know which group of beings this is, or I can't remember, but, um, but it was reported in multiple stories. Uh, and I thought it was interesting. And that is that the pilot is, is steering the ship with their mind. There's no actual, they're not using controls like we use controls. It's and it's all, and whatever propulsion is being used is some kind of vibratory, uh, mechanism, not like a solid fuel or anything like what we have. So it's a complete, some kind of totally other thing. And that doesn't, and we're just talking about the, the potential of species that are visiting our planet. There have to be many, many, uh, you would imagine many, many more that are, you know, bound to the, the planets they're on at various states of evolution that aren't driving around in spaceships, so to speak.
1: Right. And even though we, of course, have been sending things out into space and we have the technology that allows us to transcend our terrestrial boundary, we're not getting really far. At least not us, our entities. We're sending other things out. So it seems like um, the capacity to be interested in life forms on other planets belongs singularly to those that are sophisticated enough to have outdone material.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So psychokinesis and, and whatnot, that seems like the... Single most effective method of, <laughs> of travel and exchange.
2: <laughs> it's mind-boggling that that leap, uh, but that, that's what was at least reported in a number of the accounts. Yeah, twenty twenty-one will be a, a well. It, it seems like it has the potential of being a weird a turning point, at least in the um, pandemic, uh, where we're going to see, unfortunately, the most people die, mm-hmm. and the possible sort of alleviation through the vaccine of the of the pandemic so it's going to be kind of it's going to kind of be the worst and the best right and then one can imagine that um we will have another version of the roaring 20s uh after that or something because there's going to be i just think a huge exuberance for people to be with each other again
1: I absolutely agree. I think this is why, you know, if distribution of the vaccine is successful and things become safe again, the uh, reprisal of an interplanetary festival is like priority one for me. It's just like, let's gather and, and share our ideas and converse and celebrate. Um, and yet at the same time, I don't want to take for granted the fact that we've made all of these technological uh, adjustments or adaptations to maintain what feels like a uh, human contact.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, my, I eventually plan to move back.
1: Oh really, that's great. Um, yeah, that would be wonderful. Uh, we could do a lot of exploratory things, especially now that we have the the Miller campus. I could see SFI kind of pivoting towards more uh, creative creation and exploration for which you would be an asset.
2: <laughs> that sounds great.
1: Well, thank you for uh, thinking through this very strange question so thoroughly and for joining me before the end of the year.
2: Yeah, it's, well, it's, you know, it's the solstice today, so it sort of seemed like the perfect time.
1: Right. And it's also um, the planetary convergence that's taking place tonight is exactly. so unusual. So um, we picked a good day, I think. It's quite meaningful.
2: It was my pleasure.
1: <laughs> perfect. Well, I wish you a very good 2021, and I expect to see you, I think, in November.
2: I think the chances of things being okay by then are high. I that's agree. The- i want to keep thinking that way.
1: Right. Put the positive energy out there anyway. So yes, <laughs> lovely to talk to you this way, but looking forward to seeing you in November. Bye, David.
2: Bye. Thank <laughs> you for this opportunity.
1: Oh, no, it was a pleasure.